chapter, I mean Luke's chapter 6, verse 37 through 42. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, run over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable in verse 39. Could a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How do you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out that speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to read it out loud, Lord, and to edify us. Just reading your word is edifying to our souls. We thank you, Lord, that your word has been given to us, that we have access to it, Lord, that we can, uh, we get, we can own it and possess it in our own language. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray for those in other countries who do not have your word in their language. Lord, I pray that those who you have called to do that work, Lord, I pray, Lord, that, that they, you, would, you would make their minds and their hands quick, Lord, to translate the scriptures in their language. We pray for, for people that, even friends and uh, people maybe that we are, that are here in Evansville who don't actually have the Bible in their own home. They, they've never possessed it, Lord. I pray, Lord, the word of God would come to them, Lord. They would hear the word and believe and trust in Christ. Lord, we pray for our local Baptist Association, Lord. This is our, our annual meeting is coming up on Saturday, Lord. I pray as, as a collection of churches, Lord, that we would work together to see the gospel go forth. And here in Evansville, uh, here in Indiana, uh, here across the United States, and also around the world, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we would work together, that we would not be competitive with one another, that we would not seek to be greater than the other. Lord, that we would work together and serve one another and care for one another, encourage one another and correct one another and lead all of our churches to be faithful to your word. Lord, we pray for those who are unable to be with us because of sickness or travel or for whatever reasons, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would watch over them, Lord, give them strength. Bring healing to those who are sick. Bring home those who are away. And those who are not here for other reasons. Maybe they don't want to be here this morning. Maybe their hearts are heavy this morning. Maybe they feel like their sins are so heavy that they shouldn't be in your, in your house. Lord, I pray that you would give them encouragement by the gospel. That they would forgive, that confess their sins, Lord. But even if they don't confess, that you would bring them to your house. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray that you would speak through your word. That you would teach us all and encourage our souls. Through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, let's... I, um, th- this, this passage is, is, um, is interesting in a sense. I feel like Luke has kind of just had some teachings uh, from Jesus, and he just kind of throws it in here at the, at the end here. Um, and so it, it, a bit, uh, it took me, it's a bit difficult to figure out where, these all, where all this kind of comes together, where, this, where the consistency is. And, What's so interesting, I read several commentaries who had different viewpoints on this passage. So you can understand, like, I think there's just so much that Luke wanted to add at the end here. He just kind of lumped a bunch of things that Jesus said um, here at the end of this particular section of teaching. And, but I think there is a main point, a main theme that Jesus is teaching here that really does fit together. Um, and I want to I start, you know, I, 
the title is The Baptist for Me. Um, the reason why I, I, so I grew up Southern Baptist, um, and I grew up Southern Baptist, and I was that kid in high school that was, I, how can you say this? I was a bit judgmental, okay? I, I, I was the kid who went to church three or four times a week. I was a guy that probably didn't like Robert Hudson in high school. That's kind of who I was. I was this kind of arrogant, uh, kind of full of, of self-righteousness, a lot of moral superiority complex going on in my life. I thought it was everybody else's problem, not my own problem. And it, it, you, you probably came off as, oh, Matt's just quiet. Matt's just shy. I mean, that was part of it, but I think a lot of it was there was a sense of moral superiority. And I think, uh, it, it, just eventually, like, that, that did kind of get pushed out of me as I matured and as I grew up and how God has put me in certain ministry positions and ministry opportunities that really kind of forced me out of that, that immaturity. But when I became the campus ministry director at USI six years ago, I discovered people like me, and I didn't like them, okay? I didn't, uh, and most of them were Baptists, and when I got hired at USI, I had these group of students who went to one particular church in town, they were, it was a Southern Baptist church, I won't use the church's name, and those particular students were mean, they were just mean, like they were those Baptist mean people, and the, the sad thing about it is that they were 18, 19, 20 year old. We're not talking about people who are like 60, 70 years old. We're talking about these young, but just mean and gossipy and just like snakes. And you just look at you just wouldn't want to be friends with. And when I became this, and I got in this ministry position, like I was like, oh my goodness, like if they, all these students are going to be perceived by other students on campus as just morally superior Pharisees? And I think that's a lot of people in the church, right? There's this sense of, it's not that they've listened to too many sermons and have not talked to enough lost people. They believe that they're just better than everyone else. Um, and I, I want to, not to get into too many, into politics too much, but I was a poli-sci major, so it needs to happen by mistake. And I just enjoy and, and thinking about politics and stuff. But moral superiority is an, in, an issue in our, in our country today. Like, there's a sense where whatever opinion you hold is morally good and right, and the other position is morally evil. Um, and it really kind of popped out in the election in 2016. If you voted for, if you voted for Trump, you were seen as, the, you were kind of cited with that sense of morality that Trump uh, believed in. If you voted for Hillary, then you were you're kind of loved all your you're like Hillary. You have another sense of like sense of uh, evilness or wickedness about you because you voted for. It. So whoever you voted for, that was your morality. And so people who voted for the opposite of you treated you as if you were morally inferior to them. And this became such an issue: this moral tribalism, this moral superiority. And uh, there's this sense that that you are right and people and other people are wrong. That this sense that your morality is, is greater than others. And it, it even did this study, there was a study done by psychologists that said that they asked certain people in this study uh, basically to average themselves and these like six different moral traits. And what happened was is that people thought themselves better than average than other people. So in the sense that if, if I asked you how good are you or how trustworthy are you, typically you rate yourself higher than other people around you, that you're more trustworthy or more honest than other people around you, that you're more, you're more, um, you're, you have more morality, morality than, the, than other people around you. There's this natural sense to think that you are morally superior to the people around you, that you are better than the people around you. 
This is an issue. And you see that it's an issue in Jesus' time because Jesus is talking about this. He's, he's talking about moral superiority. He says, judge not, condemn not. Don't think of yourself greater than other people. Before we even get to that, we see that Jesus has been teaching his disciples. He, in, in chapter 6, verse 12, he calls out these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles. And the reason why he did that is because Jesus knows the cross is coming. He knows that he's going to Jerusalem, that he will be betrayed, that he will be arrested, that he will be killed by the Roman Empire, but handed over by the Jews. He knows this is coming. And so before that happens, he's going to teach his disciples. He's going to train his disciples, train them on the values and the actions of the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching how the kingdom should be led because he's about to leave and these apostles will now lead the church. There was an article that Sean shared with us this week about the state of theology and this is something that Ligonier did, and I read it like a while back. And it does present some really alarming truths or realities in the world is that Christians actually don't believe in proper doctrine. And it's a kind of a scary thought. And I think the issue is, is that we as pastors are too often relied upon too much for doctrine and theology, right? Too often, people just come and listen to someone teach them, and then they never actually learn. They, they come, they come to churches, and they are pastored, but they're actually never taught. That's an issue, because our churches should be congregational. Who are, people in the church should be equipped for teaching and leading the church. And so Jesus understood this. Jesus understood the cross is coming, and he needed to teach and equip his apostles and his disciples, and that's what he's doing here. Churches must outlive the founding pastor's ministry. Hopefully Redeemer will outlive me or outlive Sean or Robert or Denton or the other leaders of the church. That's why we must teach and equip the church. The church will be will go on and have um, lasting impact in the community. So I want to talk about Christ saved the guilty with generous love and freed us from building our status to the judgment of others. I think this major plot is that lo the, love people, the love people with Christ's generous love towards you and stop building your identity from the evaluation of other people. And that is the issue. Is that you, we build up our identity and our status by criticizing and judging other people. If we are better than others, then we feel good about ourselves. But too often our identity is being based on what, by comparing ourselves to other people and not based off our identity in Christ. So the first point is this spirit of generosity, a spirit of generosity. There's a German word, and I'm not going to say it. I'm, well, Scheidenfrüder, it's a word that means uh, finding joy in the failure or misfortune of others. If you're taking notes, it's spelled S-C-H-A-D-E-N-F-R-E-U-D-E-R. So it's finding joy in the failure or misfortunes of others. It's actually a condition. I mean, the Germans have a word for it. I mean, it's something that happens in our world that people find joy in the misfortune of other people. That other people fail, or other people fall, we laugh. 
or we find joy from it than other people's failures. We convince ourselves that we are better than other people if they fail. Oh, they got an F on the test and I got an A. I must be better than they are. Or I got the better grade in all the class. I'm actually, I destroyed the curve. I must be better than other people. We value ourselves based off the failures of other people. We, and it says build our status by negation, by the negative, uh, negative actions of other people. Our status is built. I don't know. I had siblings, right? But my siblings were very, very young. They were, my brother was seven years younger than me. My sister was, was nine years younger than me. So I'm not, I didn't live in a household where I had sibling, sibling rivalry, right? Where like, my siblings were so close in age that I, you know, if, if I wanted to do better than they did in school, I wanted to do better than they, than they did in athletics. I know if you did come from that family, you understand this this compulsion to want to do better than your siblings, to want to be uh, to be seen as better than your siblings. This rivalry, this 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 um, the sense that um, and, and to be honest, this is what's going on here in uh, what Jesus is talking about here. This is an issue in the first century, in the in the time of Jesus' ministry, that people thought if you were sick. Or that you were poor, that therefore you were wicked. That your failures or misfortunes were due to your own wickedness. That was the philosophy of that day. Think of the Samaritans, right? The Israelites, uh, the Jews hated the Samaritans because they thought they were subhuman. They thought that they were bad Jews. They were dirty Jews. They had intermingled with other groups of people over the years. And they were dirty. And we, that's why they would walk around Samaria to go into Galilee. And since where Jesus talks to the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan. The disciples were, were just, just jaw-dropped. And he would actually walk through Samaritan, Samaritan and actually talk to a Samaritan woman. And the, but this was the view, this view that Samaritans deserved what they got because they were wicked. The Israelites, the Jews, thought that was better than the Samaritans. We think of Levi and his friends, Levi of Matthew, the tax collector. We see this in Matthew chapter and Luke chapter five that the Pharisees grumbled at Jesus for feasting and having dinner and partying with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees believed themselves morally superior and better than they. We think of Jonah and the Ninevites, right? Jonah hated the Ninevites. Hence why he didn't want to go there and preach the gospel because he knew God was merciful and graceful and will save them and he didn't want them to be saved. Because Jonah believed he was better than the Ninevites. That he was morally superior than the Ninevites and they deserved to be judged and not saved by God. So this building of status by negation, criticizing others to make yourself look better, validating yourself and your worth by putting yourself over other people. This is what's going on. Here's why Jesus says, judge not, in verse 27. He says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. When we talk about judgment, we're not talking about discerning what is good and bad. It's not like going to the grocery store and finding, trying to find a good tomato or a good piece of fruit. We're not, you, we're not talking about this discernment about what is a good fruit or a bad fruit, or a good hire or a bad hire. I know if you have to promote people or hire people, that's a part of your job. You're trying to discern and judge who's the better hire of the pool of people. Jesus is not talking about that definition of judgment. He's talking about passing judgment on another person. Some people are accepted and some people are not accepted because of certain characteristics of themselves. You think of high school, right? I mean, I talked to, to you a little bit about my, my history in high school. High school is this social experiment. It, it really isn't about school. It's not really about taking tests or writing papers. 
It's about throwing a bunch of kids in a building and see what happens, right? And you have teachers. I know you're, you're teachers. You kind of probably feel this way. You feel more like a referee than you feel like an actual teacher. But it's about they just throw students in a building. They lock the door and just see what happens. And what happens? Well, the popular kids are friends with each other, right? The athletes are friends with each other. The nerds are friends with each other. The people who feel like outcasts aren't friends with anybody. The, in my high school, all the farmer kids were, were friends. The all those kids hung out with each other. So this is what happens is that people get accepted by their group of people, and then some people, they feel just don't belong. They feel like they're better than or more superior than other people, and so they just don't belong, and they're pushed out and not allowed in. And this day, the Gentiles were not allowed. They were not, didn't belong in the Jewish culture. They were dirty. They were sinners. They were people who had not been chosen by God. And so they were outcasts and they were not accepted. They didn't belong. The Jews felt morally superior than the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish. Think of the poor and the lepers. We thought we, uh, uh, we preached about the leper and how God, Christ, healed the leper. The lepers were cast out. They were, they, were, they were people that were misfortunate. They were people that didn't belong. Think about the poor. They didn't belong. They were outcasts. They were pushed out. And the people who were rich were morally superior, people that they thought were, they were better than it. And when I was thinking about this, I, for some of you who, who go to USI, and you hang out with some of us who eat lunch. You know Linda, right? Linda cleans the tables at USI. And you notice, sometimes she'll complain to us that people don't talk to her, that they ignore her. It's because she has, like, she ha if you met her, you would kind of notice some social issues. But a lot of the students, what you'll notice, they'll just kind of ignore her. They'll, like, try to avoid her. They don't want to talk to her. They don't want to interact with her because she's loud at times. She may ask awkward questions, and students don't know how to deal with it. They don't want to talk about that. And so there's a sense of this kind of superiority about them. Like, I don't really want to be seen with you. I don't want to talk with you. I don't really want to be identified with you and the sense of moral superiority and the sense of judgment that happens. That we our value as people, we actually devalue people so that we can feel more valued or more worthy. It's this idea of it's a doggy dog world. The ones are at the top of the ladder get the prize. So I must put myself above them. Greg Boyd says, you can't love and judge at the same time. It's impossible to ascribe unsurpassable worth to others when you're using others to ascribe worth to yourself. You can't love your enemies. You can't love people if you're judging them and you say, I have to judge you so that I can feel morally superior than you are. I can feel better than you. Again, going back to Israel's beliefs at the time, they were God's chosen people. They received his law. They believed themselves to be morally superior. They felt that they believed themselves to be special. And it created a feeling of contempt over the people living amongst them or around them. Uh, Sean read the parable of the Pharisees and the tax collector. They were righteous. The Pharisees were righteous. They, they treated others with contempt, it says in verse 9. They thought themselves better than everyone else. They thought themselves better than the tax collectors. And contentment is one of the most, is the, one of the dirtiest and darkest words that we have. Because this idea of you feeling you're better than other people is really the reason why you have, sometimes you have divorce. This belief that you feel like you're better than the other person in the marriage, and so therefore you deserve to get out because you're better than they are. 
Uh, studies show that most divorces have to do with contentment more than financial issues or other issues. Contentment, believing you're better than the other person, that their ideas are stupid, their opinions are stupid, are one of the main reasons why people get divorced. You think of, actually, there's stories about genocide. The reason why people uh, kill people in mass ways or even put people in concentration camps is this view that they're better than you, that, that these people are subhuman, and so therefore you treat them as subhuman. You treat them as dogs or animals. You don't treat them as human beings because you think you're better than they are. And I think it happens in evangelism as well. I think the reason why our churches don't grow and we're not very effective in ministry is because we really think we're better than people that are around us. We think we're better. We think we have Jesus, we have the Bible, and therefore they don't have it, and that's their loss. That's their lot. Even there's a book called Unchristian, and it says nine out of ten young people view Christians as judgmental. Nine out of ten Christians, uh, nine out of ten young people view Christians as judgmental. And I think it's created this culture of fear and suspicion that there's there's people in the world, and we watch the news too much, right? We read Facebook too much. The, the world's full of evil people. The world's full of sick people. The world's full of mean people and sinful people. And I just need to stay away from them. I just need to be away from it. I need my family away from it. I need to put up walls. I need to build barricades. I need to put up hedges. And I don't want to interact with people that are sick. I don't want to do that. And what you're doing, maybe it's subconsciously, what you're doing is, is you're viewing yourself better than other people. You're judging people. And Jesus says, don't judge them. Don't condemn them. If you're a USI student, and you, to be honest, if you're a girl here and you hate sorority girls, like you walk around and you see them, all their Greek letters and all their sweatshirts and their bags and their chit-chatting and talking, it just disgusts you, right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, why do you have to pay for your own friends? It's unbelievable. Like you have this viewpoint. Like I know some of you have it. I get it. Like I understand. Here's the deal. You're not better than they are. You're not. They're not better than you are. And this idea of superiority is one of our biggest issues, and you have to... Befriend them, right? Invite a bunch of fraternity guys to hang out with you. Invite a bunch of fraternity and sorority people to have... And they won't interact with you. If they don't want to, then that's on them. But don't judge them. Don't condemn them. Those neighbors who never kick their gra- cut their grass or are full of drama, go talk with them, right? Every time you drive by their house, like, oh my gosh, like, cut the grass. Oh my goodness. This attitude leads to a sense of unkindness, unlovingness and that you do not interact with them and share the gospel with them and, and befriend them because there's things that in their lives that you think you're just morally superior than them or you're better than them. Don't judge them. Don't use them as validation of yourself. Treat them like you would like to be treated if you're in the same situation. I want to just present a warning here. and You see it here in Luke. It says, judge but, or, and you will not be judged. Condemned and you will not be condemned. I think there's an attitude that we need to be slow to judge. There's a warning here. There's a cautionness to judgment. Be slow to judge. As God is accredited as being slow to judgment in Ezekiel, I mean, Exodus 34, God is full of mercy and kindness. And he's slow to judge. He's slow to condemn. We see that in the story of Israel, right? He was slow to condemn them. He was slow to judge them. We should share the share of the shame uh, characteristics. Uh, Luke, uh, here in Luke 6, it says, it says, all right, judge not, condemn not, but forgive, and you will be forgiven. The whole 
uh, point is to aim for restoration. We should aim for restoration. We shouldn't aim for judgment. We shouldn't aim for condemnation. We should aim for restoration. That we should seek restoration in relationships. We should seek um, uh, this redeeming of relationships of people and not judgment and condemnation. It even says give. Seeking the positive good of other people, right? Forgiveness is one thing, but to forgive them and then to give to them is a totally different matter. You're actually trying to bless them. You want their life to be better, not worse. It goes the opposite of what our culture is doing. is right, puff yourself up, push other people down. Jesus is saying, don't push them down, push them up. Promote them, encourage them, bless them, give to them. Not only do you give them a little, but you give them the good measure, it says. You, he's talking about if you went to, a, um, you went to go get grain and you brought your, your container and, and the person who was giving you the, 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 the wheat uh, would press it down. It would be shaken together. It would run over. He's not trying to chip you. He's not trying to, to cheat you. He's trying to give you the full measure, the good measure. So when we give to people, when we are trying to bless them, then we give the full amount. We don't give a half amount. We don't give a quarter. We give the good measure. It's the identity of the kingdom of God, living in light of the gospel. You've been saved by Christ. I'm viewed as righteous before God because of Christ's righteousness. I've been saved by grace, not by my works or deeds. I'm in Christ. I've been alive. I've been made alive together with Christ. I've been seated with Christ in heaven and given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. What do I really need to prove? Why do I have to compare myself to other people? Why do I have to make myself feel better than other people? I'm in Jesus Christ. I'm in heaven. I've received all the blessings of the heavenly places. What else do I need to prove? What else do I need? Refusing to prove ourselves greater over others. We are completely satisfied in Christ. Completely satisfied. I want to... Uh, I, I know that the Parkers and I share this. We love George W. Bush. Like we were talking about it not, not too long ago. And, and some of you may not like him, I get it, but like there's something about the Bush family that is refreshing. Do you not, I don't, you may not know this, but they are really close friends with the Clintons and the Obamas. Like you would think that doesn't make sense. How could they possibly be friends with them? Actually, Clint, uh, Bill Clinton spends more time in Maine where the Bush Sr. lives than actually George W. does. Like Bill Clinton loves George H.W. Bush. Like they are, like Bush. Bush Jr. says that Bill Clinton is his brother from another mother. Like, he literally says that. There's a sense of, of not saying my time as president was better than yours. There's a sense where they bless what, the Bushes bless them and encourage them and edify them in ways that we don't think exist in our political world. And I think it's because the, the, they, are, they are very content... With their identity. They don't need to prove themselves to the world that they're better than these two presidents. They are, they are very secure and, and what they did and, and how they led. And I think that's how we should take this idea of being satisfied and content. Are we satisfied with Christ alone for our identity? Is it enough for you? Or do you need other things to validate your worth? The Pharisees were not satisfied with God alone. They needed to be validated by their moral superiority over other people. The second point is this, the teacher of generosity. So, again, we, we get that this judge not, give, forgive, 
good measure. And then we get this little parable about a blind man. So how does that all fit into all this? It says, a blind man, if you're a blind being led by the blind, will both fall into the pit. They'll both fall into the pit. What is Jesus talking about here? How does that have to do anything with contentment, I mean, with condemnation or judgment? He even talks about that the teacher, the disciple is not above the teacher. A disciple that is fully trained will be like his teacher. And I think what Jesus is getting to here is that these Pharisees, who thought of themselves morally superior than other people, were teaching other people that they were morally superior than others. And they were blind. They were blind. They were, they were leading the blind. And they were falling into the pit. They were falling into judgment of their condemnation um, uh, on themselves because of their teaching. They were not morally superior than other people. The disciples were being taught this. Just because you're Jews doesn't make you better than Gentiles. Paul says in Romans 8, 29, be conformed into the image of Christ. The teacher of generosity. Jesus is the teacher of generosity. This is all about being generous. This is all about blessing other people. And Jesus led a life of generosity. What did Jesus do? In Luke 4, he talked about his ministry being to the poor and to the oppressed and to those in chains. We think of Jesus uh, uh, who is feasting with the tax collectors and the sinners. And he said, I came to come for the sick, not for the righteous. I came to heal the sick, those who need a physician. This is what Jesus said. He did not come to hang out with the morally superior and to validate their lives. He came to save and redeem the lost. And what did Jesus do? He ate with sinners. On repeated times, he ate with sinners. He, he came and accepted them. He judged them not. He condemned them not. He blessed them. He died for them. I mean, he, he took on the nails, right? I love the quote. Uh, I mean, uh, Tim Keller had a quote in an article he wrote that Jesus conquered and, 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 and saved, not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. That's how he was generous. He gave his own life. The last point is a community of generosity. So we have a teacher, right? So he is the teacher. We don't follow the blinds, right? We're disciples, and we are fully trained in the teachings and sayings and the actions of Christ. We're not following the blind and falling into the pit. We're following the teacher of generosity. And the last is that we create, he creates a community of generosity. This is the last few verses here. He says, how can you call out the speck in your brother's eye if you don't first take out the log of your own eye? We, we under, we've probably heard this small parable, this exaggerated language that Jesus used. Obviously, there's never been a person with a log in their eyes. This is, this is hyperbole. This is language that's using exaggeration to make a point. So what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about if you want to be a generous person, if you want to judge not, if you want to condemn not, if you want to give and forgive, you have to be one who is humble. Because if you're not humble, you will be morally superior. And if you're morally superior, you will continue to judge people and continue to lead the blind and continue to fail. So humility, personal sins, confessions, we confess in church. We think it's important to confess your sins. Because if you don't confess sins, you will automatically and naturally think you're better than other people because you're just a Christian or because you're in church. We are just equally guilty and wicked before the eyes of God without Christ. And it's important to confess sins because when you confess sins, it shows your humility and your your need for Christ and your need for Christ's generosity. You're considerate of other people. 
your understanding of their, their failures and their mistakes. You're compassionate towards them. You're grateful in all of that for God's grace, his generosity on your life, his good measure on you. That God didn't give you half portion. He gave you a full portion. He gave you the good measure of his grace. Ephesians 1 said he lavished us with his grace. Romans 3 says that even though we have fallen short of the glory of God, we have been redeemed and justified for the eyes of God because of Christ Jesus and the wrath put upon him. We receive the full measure. We should be grateful for it. You will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The important part here is not just ignore the speck. All right, take the log out, but then go, okay, I get the log out, and then move on with your life. The brother is still important in this equation. The love for the brother, the counsel, the care, the prayer, not ignoring or indifferent to the speck in the eye of the brother. But to be able to truly help him or help her, you have to recognize your own sin in humility and embrace the gospel in your own life. But the gospel and its generosity through Christ Jesus saved you and took the log out of your eye. And then so that you can remove the speck in your brother's eye. So you can actually help him and point him to the gospel, point him to Christ, point him to confession. That's all about your brother as well. And so I want to conclude with this. There's a tendency for churches like Redeemer to be morally superior. And this is what I, I want to explain it for a second. For being a reformed church who appreciates the doctrines of grace, who appreciate the reformers, who appreciate good theology and good doctrine, there's a tendency to think ourselves better than other churches who aren't like us. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. And there's a tendency to think, well, why would you go to that church? You should come to our church. We do all this and we do all that. We're better than they are. Don't. This is something that creeps in my heart all the time. And it's important here that we don't judge and condemn, but that we forgive and we give. That we create a culture here that I think Jesus is, is, is teaching his disciples to carry into to form in the early church. That the church is humble. The church aims for restoration. The church strongly is encouraging to fellow brothers and sisters of Christ, even if they disagree on theology or politics or anything like that. That we're teachers, that we teach, and that we lead people through love and compassion to understanding. That there's a culture at Redeemer that should reflect the culture of Christ's kingdom. A kingdom that doesn't judge, a kingdom that does not condemn, but a kingdom that forgives and gives. A kingdom of generosity that follows our teacher of generosity that creates a community of generosity. That we are a church that doesn't look down on other people because we are somehow believe we're morally superior or smarter than other people. Or that we have our lives together and nobody else does. That gives us no right to judge and condemn. It gives us an opportunity to be generous and to forgive and to encourage and to teach and to pray for and to counsel and to love and to give and to provide for and take care of, and to love, and to show compassion. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for its conviction on my heart, and hopefully on other people, that it, it's our tendency, Lord, to believe that we're better than other people. 
It's our tendency, Lord, to think that we're better because of um, who our parents are, um, the color of our skin, what school we went to, the money in our bank account, what church we go to. All these things, Lord, we can use to validate ourselves over other people. And your word strongly condemns it and says, judge not and condemn not. Forgive. Give. Give the full measure, the good measure. Don't be a blind man leading the blind, but follow the teacher of generosity. Lord, being humble, removing the logs in our own eye to help counsel and bring out the specks in others. Lord, I pray that you would create a culture here of generosity. I pray for those here who are struggling with this, who truly struggle in thinking of themselves better than other people because of an opinion they have or a viewpoint they have. Lord, that is a sin. And it's something we have to confess. And it's something we have to repent of. And Lord, I want to encourage my brothers and sisters to do so. If you're here and you have been, you've been judged by a Christian, if you're a non-believer and you... You're, you're weary towards Christianity because Christians have judged you in the past. Lord, I just want to, I, I want to speak to them and say that is not Christ. Christ came for the sick. He came to bring healing to the poor. He came to restore people to his Father. That is why he came. And I want to encourage them to put their faith in Christ. Don't trust in church. Don't trust in Christians. They did not save you. Christ Jesus saved you on the cross. And I pray for those. I pray, Lord, that you would bring healing to their hearts and that you would give them better perspectives on your word and who Christ is. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.